Randy. No comment. The discipline. Yeah. <laughs> Did you see the, the the rhythm and the motion in my groove? I mean, I saw a little bit of a you mm-hmm. know subtle head movement, and, and of course, I saw Brian's full on head bob. <laughs> I miss it. I feel like it's been a long time since yeah. I've heard that. We need to brand this podcast with a Brian bobblehead, <laughs> but with the music piped into the. I mean, the fact that Randy, you had like there was no like comment within 10 seconds of the music starting that's i feel like that you've come a long way as a professional broadcaster i'm maturing i'm growing following each of your examples that's such a good good thing to observe and i I feel like you know i feel like kind of a mentor in all of this absolutely so (laughs) i'm just thankful that uh i had this opportunity to or it could be indigestion (laughs) it's a feeling (laughs) to influence let me live my dream let me live my dream so Welcome to uh, That's Worth Repeating. This is That's Worth Repeating, right? You guys know that, right? That's right, yeah. That's All right, so these microphones in your face. You this can is say a, that again. You can yes, say it again. This is an actual <laughs> podcast that we're actually recording. You see these little things moving here. That means that we're live. Oh. So that's what's going on. Interesting. Uh, I'm Richard Goff. You are? Brian Irby. And you are? Randy Cook. All right. Gang's all here. So it's June, it's summer, and I'm just wondering, what are you guys planning to do for Pride Month? <laughs> Got big plans? <laughs> Well, God opposes the proud, the proud, and that's the, just, the humble. But this is true. If you're referencing uh, the celebration of a certain people group, yes, no plans, no plans, no, no plans. Mm-mm. It's interesting though, because you know you think about uh, what's going on in our culture. And Brian, you were kind of mentioning this before we started uh, the podcast. How this is really everywhere. Yeah, yeah, you can't you can't really avoid it anymore. And um, the 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 rainbow symbol flags, you know, all that there's, there's banners and whatnot on corporate websites. I mean, it's just a huge, it's a huge thing. Kind of a, it's kind of a a cultural reality that we live in. It's the soup that we we live in. Yeah. It's just, it's just what's normal for us. Um, and I do think that it poses for, you know, faithful believers, a pretty unique challenge. And that's kind of what I want us to spend some time on today. That's what our quotable quote by our notable person will hopefully uh, lead us into. But I thought, you know, the, the, there, there are some elements to this where, I mean, this can be a provocative thing. When I say provocative, I don't mean like, you know, controversial, controversially provocative. What I mean is it provokes people. Um, it, 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 especially, especially people who have a very high moral sense or they um, they sort of struggle with the moral decline in our culture, or maybe they have you know children that are growing up in this day and time, and they're seeing you know a lot of the exhibition of immorality around them. This this provokes the conscience of many people. Yeah. Um, particularly, I think Christians, it provokes their conscience in a unique way. Um, and so I you know I I, I want to take this on at the risk of of being somewhat provocative, but I think that we need to also uh, work our way toward what hopefully is faithful biblical thinking and and action um, yeah, yeah. around this this issue and around our place in society as salt and light um, in the midst of of what is a, a a declining moral culture. So, but I thought I'd start with this. With this, I, I showed this. Um, this video last night to my wife and my daughter. Um, 
And I'm just gonna I'm gonna play. This is this is uh, some introductory commentary by Matt Walsh. Matt Walsh is a a writer and a podcaster um, on the Daily Wire, and uh, he had this as kind of featured on his um, podcast. I guess a couple of days ago, maybe yesterday or day before yesterday. And it just it really hit home to me, and I'll explain why in just a moment. This is going to be a, a somewhat of a, a long clip of of the introduction of, of the Matt Walsh show. So just kind of hang in there with me, and um, and uh, you'll you'll understand the the reason why we're doing this. Here it is. You know, it's important not to idealize the past. The world during my childhood certainly wasn't perfect. The media we consumed at the time wasn't perfect either. But one thing I do remember is that children's shows were, broadly speaking, shows for children. They had childish themes and ideas and plots. The moral at the end of every story was always something like, sharing is good or learning is fun. And this all made a lot of sense. The show Blue's Clues was a little bit after my time. It debuted when I was in middle school, I think, if I remember correctly. But my younger siblings were uh, Blue's Clues fanatics. So, Okay. My daughter, Blue's Clues, big time. She had a Blue's Clues birthday cake, a birthday one year, Blue's Clues, I remember. She had, it's known, at least it used to be known for this big red chair where... Yeah. We the had the same chair. And, yeah, yep. the thinking chair. I sat in it to watch TV a lot. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so she had one of those inflatable, you know, big red chairs. I mean, it was a thing. It was an actual thing during my daughter's, you know, childhood. So this hit home in, in a pretty significant way. So, but he, he goes on. Exposed to the show a fair amount. During a typical episode, Blue, the cartoon dog, would decide that he wanted to, you know, make puppets out of construction paper or something. And then he discovered that his scissors are missing. And with the help of his human friend, Steve, and the children watching at home, Blue would search around the house for his scissors. And then he would eventually find the scissors, and that would be the end of the episode. Suspense, drama, sorrow, redemption, the show had it all. Or at least it had enough for the preschoolers in the audience. Because preschoolers, they don't need much from their entertainment. Innocent and simple should be the name of the game. And that's what many children's shows used to be. That's what Blue's Clues used to be. But not anymore. Like so many other forms of child entertainment, Blue's Clues went from looking for his scissors to this. Families marching one by one, hurrah, hurrah. Families marching one by one, hurrah, hurrah. This family has two mommies. They love each other so proudly. And they all go marching in the two big mommies. hooray. Families marching two by two, hurrah, hurrah. Families marching two by two, hurrah, hurrah. This family has two daddies. They love each other so proudly. And they all go marching in the big parade. Come on, friends. Families marching three by It goes on and on. It goes all the way to 10. And it introduces the target demographic of Blue's Clues, children ages three to five years old, to every terminology of the LGBTQIA, you know, dot, 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 lexicon, trans, pan, asexual, the whole, the whole thing. So when you see that and you, and you think of the term indoctrination, that's all that this could be. Oh yeah. (laughs) It's all it could be because a three to five-year-old has no idea. This is just planting seeds. This is just introducing them to the language of normal 
family love. They love each other so proudly, and this is just normal family love. It even introduces the concept of allies, which is, you know, people who are allies with the LGBT, you know, straight people who are allies of the LGBTQI community. So all this to say, what Matt Walsh talked about, about what Blue's Clues as an example of a children's show used to be to what it is today, it's now Pride Month here in the United States of America, the month of June. And what what is a show directly geared toward preschoolers? It has a full-on exhibition of a children's version of a pride parade and introduces them to every, every terminology you could imagine in the lexicon of the LGBTQIA sort of identity, you know, categories. This is, this is where we are. Mm-hmm. And I read um, the other day, I, I actually yesterday, I read a statistic that I think it's um, one in five Gen Xers identify in some way as LGBTQIA. One in five of the the youth generation today. Yeah. Not Gen X, Gen Z. Sorry, Gen Z. So if we wonder, so just I want just imagine for a moment what it is that our society is doing to itself mm. and principally to its children. There's there's this. There's this a debased mind that that analyzes all this stuff. The debased mind that Paul talks about in Romans chapter one, this debased collective fallen mind of man that sort of analyzes what's happening in our culture, and they see these things as great developments, where more and more people are identifying in these ways. But the fact of the matter is, is that if we continue to introduce and normalize these kinds of things at a young age, wow. if you have never if you are too old and have forgotten what it's like to go through puberty, or if you haven't had kids that have you've raised through that can be very confusing in the most stable, you know, conservative of households can be a very confusing, very tumultuous, very vulnerable season of life for young people. And you're introducing and, and all and promoting and actually lauding in every conceivable venue, venue you can think of, whether it's children's shows or entertainment or education or whatever, and, and then you wonder why more people are, more young people are identifying in these ways. Yeah. So basically, this is just to, to kind of introduce us to the sort of the reality. When we talk about this is, the, this is the culture that we're in, it's easy for us to, I think, think of it from far away, or at least at arm's length, because, you know, the, the, our, our circles and our comings and goings, I mean, we're not experiencing this really. We see it maybe, you know, bumper stickers or commercials or whatever. We come across it in the way that I just did with the Matt Walsh show as an example or a newscast or something. But in terms of our normal comings and goings, our, our interactions, you know, it's, it's arm's length for us. It's, it doesn't represent the ethos it doesn't represent the ideology. It doesn't represent the worldview of the people we associate with normally. But this is, in fact, characteristic. Yeah. It's closing in on us of though. our culture. Uh, yes. I imagine uh, we have contact with some individuals that are embracing these cultural ideas, or maybe even people who are struggling with homosexual tendencies or whatever. But I, right now, I'm compelled to encourage. If Emily, she's listening, 
Stop watching Blue's Clues. If your parents <laughs> have not discouraged you or restricted you from watching that, please cut it off. Yeah, so it's not just the fact that she's 23 years old. She is 23 now. <laughs> but it's also the content, but really. I, I, I still try to catch a episode every now and then. I've never seen this one, though. So. Yeah. yeah, that's funny. Uh, she was, I, it's, it, and you, 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 make, you make that, that, uh, that that joke there mm-hmm. about her not watching, but she watched this video, uh, this you know parade, pride parade thing on Blue's Clues. She was incensed. Yes. I mean, it, it stirred up in her like this righteous indignation. I I sat and watched this with my children and love Steve and yep. and, and I got nauseous watching this. Oh yeah, this is what they've turned that show. That into. made me so angry. Yeah, mm. that is sick. So so here you go. So I told you it's provocative, right? Yeah. You see stuff like that. Now the question that we're going to wrestle with today is what what is the response? How what what is the extent of the Christian response? Mm-hmm. What is the application rubber meeting the road Christian response? What is the heart posture response of the believer? This is this is these are challenging times. Yeah. This is a challenging matter and it I think it is uh, the kind of challenge that can provoke us to all manner of unrighteousness and ungodliness. And so we have to be, I think, as much encouraged and pointed in a biblical direction, we also have to be cautioned Mm -hmm. in the midst of it all. Um, You know, it's interesting when you look at the, some of the history of sort of the, the, what you might call um, what it used to be just gay pride, you know, kind of the, the, the pride movement um, before it, it was, uh, so multifaceted and uh, multi-lettered uh, in terms of the acronym. It really, uh, many would say it goes back to the Stonewall Riots. Familiar with the Stonewall Riots? A little bit? Sounds familiar. Uh, the Stonewall in Uprising in New York. Yep. A series of violent confrontations that began in the early hours of June 28, 1969, between police and gay rights activists outside the Stonewall Inn, a gay bar in Greenwich Village, in the Greenwich Village section of New York City. As the riots progressed, an international gay rights movement was born. I want you to listen to a little bit of the the, the story. This is from, by the way, this is from Britannica, the you know, Britannica.com, Britannica Encyclopedia, the website. It says, in 1969... The solicitation of homosexual relations was an illegal act in New York City and indeed virtually all other urban centers. Gay bars were were places of refuge where gay men and lesbians and other individuals who were considered sexually suspect could socialize in relative safety from public harassment. Many of those bars were, however, subject to regular police harassment. One such well-known gathering place for young gay men, lesbians, and transgender people was the Stonewall Inn in Greenwich Village, a dark, seedy, crowded bar reportedly operating without a liquor license. In the early morning hours of Saturday, June 28, 1969, nine policemen entered the Stonewall Inn, arrested the employees for selling alcohol without a license, roughed up many of its patrons, cleared the bar, and in accordance with a New York criminal statute that authorized the arrest of anyone not wearing at least three articles of gender-appropriate clothing, took several people into custody. It was the third such raid on Greenwich Village gay bars in a short period. This time, the people milling outside the bar did not retreat or scatter as they almost always had in the past. Their anger was apparent and vocal as they watched bar patrons being forced into a police van. They began to jeer at the jeer and 
jeer at, excuse me, and jostle the police and then threw bottles and debris. Accustomed to more passive behavior, even from larger gay groups, the policemen called for reinforcements and barricaded themselves inside the bar while some 400 people rioted. The police barricade was repeatedly breached and the bar was set on fire. Police reinforcements arrived in time to extinguish the flames and they uh, eventually dispersed the crowds. The riots outside the Stonewall Inn waxed and waned for the next five days. Many historians characterize the uprising as a spontaneous protest against the perpetual police harassment and social discrimination suffered by a variety of sexual minorities in the 1960s. So, th- this is th- th- that's the issue there. So, so, just get the idea. So, there was a law on the books. And there was for many, many years in this country, there was laws against sodomy and, and, and homosexual conduct and that kind of thing. And, you know, we don't have to debate the, the, the rationale or the, the wisdom or lack thereof of those kinds of laws in any society or any municipality or whatever. But those were the laws in the books. And you have these policemen. And I'm sure that there was, you know, some level of, of um, unnecessary use of force that you just have to imagine a situation like that. But ultimately what happened was they were barricaded inside. All the policemen were barricaded inside and the building was set on fire. So here's the irony of all this. Here's an irony is probably not even the best term. Here's the sort of the depraved twistedness of it, that, that that was turned into a national landmark and That's the right. whole area around it is has been sort of memorialized as this place of historic. Obama, Obama put that, a monument on it. I That's believe. right. That's right. Barack Obama did do that as president of the United States. And so you you have what was actually um, a, a really a, a riot that potentially threatened the lives of police officers in New York in in a significant way. I mean, setting a building on fire that they were barricaded inside as being this great revolutionary moment for the, the, the movement toward acknowledging the civil liberties and civil rights of those with, you know, homosexual lifestyle or lesbianism or pick your, pick your sort of uh, non-straight heterosexual sexual identity orientation preference. Just pick your sociological term, however you want to do it. Um, and that's that's kind of this this historic moment that needs to be memorialized and held up as this great moment in time. And that's how our society kind of is. That, that's what we're doing now. That's how we view things now. That's how we that's how we analyze good things versus evil things right versus wrong it's so it's totally inverted and turned inside out yeah and of course it lacks it lacks a thorough critical analysis of all the events that transpired and all the actions that were taken and words that were spoken and it just paints this broad stroke picture of the liberation of people who were unfairly treated because of their you know their sexuality um, and their really their sexual perversion uh, is is what we're talking about here, and the police, even in Britannica, are the ones that were harassing. You That's know? right. Yeah, they were. I mean, provoking the. So it's like so sure. when they do they do their job. And they they're, they're that's called harassment. You know, yeah. it's like it's like the child that doesn't like their parent telling them what to do. Yeah, 
and they're being oppressed by their mom and dad. They're That's being right. Oppressed by, it's like, I want to speak and you can't tell me what to do. And you know, it's just, yeah. 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 Um, Tim Challies has, I think a, a really good, um, succinct way of kind of summarizing the current state of affairs. He says, we live in a time of great public immorality, a time in which the only thing that is shameful is shame itself. Immorality is synonymous with entertainment and the basest sexual perversions are flaunted on screen for all to see. Television shows compete among themselves to explore and transgress any boundary. The very things that marked a respectable man a few years back mark a bigoted or repressed one today. Mm -hmm. Society is so saturated with immorality, it is impossible to prevent ourselves from being inundated with it. I'll read some more from that article as we go on. But so, so anyway, again, it, it, if we just continue, I mean, the, the examples that we could pull up from news accounts or YouTube videos, I mean, we, we, we could just completely immerse ourselves in what might otherwise be very discouraging and depressing realities from our culture. Mm -hmm. But I want us to go to our quotable quote by our notable person today and, and kind of move ourselves in a direction that, you know, in light of what is our current sort of cultural reality, especially in light of the, um, the ongoing effects of the sexual revolution of the sixties and seventies that is pushing us now into even more, um, inventive forms of sexual perversion. Mm-hmm. Um, I want us to steer our minds and our thoughts and our discussion toward, okay, so what do we do? What does God call us to as, as believers? And I, I, I want to use a, a quote by Jonathan Edwards and just a little bio, quick bio. Most people listening, I'm sure are familiar to one degree or another with Jonathan Edwards, but he was born in October of 1703 in East Windsor, Connecticut. Uh, He died in March of 1758 in Princeton, New Jersey. He's considered by many to be the greatest theologian and philosopher of British American Puritanism. He was a stimulator of the religious revival known as the Great Awakening and one of the forerunners of the age of Protestant missionary expansion in the 19th century. Um, Published very notable works that probably many people in the Christian community have heard of his famous resolutions, which was basically a list of 70 some odd, you know, commitments or convictions on his part that he wanted to be accountable for. And, um, he wrote the end for which God created the world, uh, freedom of the will, religious affections. These are just a few. And then there's a, a collection of sermons and lectures called charity and its fruits, charity, being a you know a reference to love, the love of God, love for God, and and its fruits. What is the fruit of the love of Christ in the believer? What does it look like? Um, and we're going to take a quote from that. But I wanted to kind of give us a taste of of I couldn't I, you know you can't really I don't think talk about Jonathan Edwards, especially since this is the first time we've we've used him, without mentioning his most famous sermon. What's his most famous sermon? Anybody know? Sinners in the hands of an angry God. That's it. So that was uh, delivered in July of 1741, and it's he, he his his focal text is Deuteronomy 32:35, which is God speaking, saying, "Vengeance is mine, and recompense 
For the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. Now I want to read a little excerpt from Sinners in the Hands of Amory God so we can get a sense of what kind of preaching stimulated or was a catalyst for the great awake, uh, the first great awakening in this country. Here's what he says. He says, The observation from the words that I would now insist upon is this. There is nothing that keeps wicked men at any one moment out of hell but the mere pleasure of God. By the mere pleasure of God, I mean his sovereign pleasure, his arbitrary will, restrained by no obligation, hindered by no manner of difficulty, any more than if nothing else but God's mere will had in the least degree or in any respect whatsoever any hand in the preservation of wicked men one moment. There is no want of power in God to cast wicked men into hell at any moment. Men's hands cannot be strong when God rises up. The strongest have no power to resist him, nor can any deliver out of his hands. He is not only able to cast wicked men into hell, but he can most easily do it. Sometimes an earthly prince meets with a great deal of difficulty to subdue a rebel who has found means to fortify himself and has made himself strong by the numbers of his followers. But it is not so with God. There is no fortress that is any defense from the power of God. Though hand join in hand and vast multitudes of God's enemies combine and associate themselves, they are easily broken in pieces. They are as great heaps of light chaff before the whirlwind or large quantities of dry stubble before devouring flames. We find it easy to tread on and crush a worm that we see crawling on the earth. So it is easy for us to cut or singe a slender thread that anything hangs by. Thus easy it is for God when he pleases to cast his enemies down to hell. That's a little taste of sinners in the hands of an angry God. That probably is not your typical sort of evangelistic message that you might hear today in the seeker-sensitive type of environment. But in light of what we're talking about today, here's a quote, a quotable quote by Jonathan Edwards from Charity and Its Fruits. Here's what he says. And thinking about this issue of, of Pride Month and the inundation of, uh, of really perversion uh, and into our, our life and our experience on a day-to-day basis. He says this, a man of a right spirit is not a man of narrow and private views, but is greatly interested and concerned for the good of the community to which he belongs, and particularly of the city or village in which he resides, and for the true welfare of the society of which he is a member, end quote. I'm going to say that again. A man of right spirit is not a man of narrow and private views, but is greatly interested and concerned for the good of the community to which he belongs, and particularly of the city or village in which he resides, and for the true welfare of the society of which he is a member. End quote. Now this is him speaking to the, the godly man, the spirit-filled man or woman's responsibilities to manifest the love of Christ in public ways and in public forums. I want to get some of your thoughts on that as we 
consider what we've talked about to lead into this discussion? What do you think about that? How does the rubber meet the road? Well, I have, I have to think back to even the Stonewall riots and th- considering how the police were responding. You know, there was animosity, you know, in their own hearts, they were provoked to unleash hatred towards those individuals because of their sexual um, preferences or however you want to and think that it was their response that provoked the riots in a sense. And and I think that probably many in the church would have applauded the efforts to squash that movement, which only um, provoked it to its where it is today, at least in the beginning. Then to reconsider, how are we demonstrating the character of God in this? And, And Exodus 34 comes to mind where he proclaims to Moses, you know, I'm the Lord, your God, uh, I'll have compassion. I'll have mercy, but the guilty will not go unpunished. Yeah, he he will bring judgment. But have we lost leverage in the church to call men to repentance because we think we're to bring that judgment that's against right. them? Yeah, that's that's a good word. And, and you know this this is what I, this is what I was kind of speaking to earlier and how. Um, these matters that we're talking about, I mean, again, I, I use this Blue's Clues example intentionally because it provokes in us a, a, a kind of anger and almost a, a little bit of sense of helplessness, but also a little vindictiveness. Like, how dare you take one of my childhood, my, one of my children's yeah. childhood shows and spoil it like that. It, you know, you have that parental ire that kind of rises up or whatever. So, I mean, these are real matters, but to your point, Randy, it's a, such a good, good point. Um, how have we as the church been basically complicit in a spiritual sense of the pervasiveness of this, the, the growing nature of this in the sense that we have not been actually the church in the midst of the community like we should. And I'm speaking very generally right. the church, you know, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm not saying necessarily our local church or whatever, but I'm, I'm saying the Christian, the confessing Christian community. Um, so, so to your, to your point, I'm just wondering like, what, what do you, what do you think are some ways we manifest um, our, our public Right. convictions in ways that are utterly unhelpful. Well, I know Brian has something to say, but I, when you were reading the Edwards quote from that sermon, first and foremost, fear enters the heart, but then it ought to provoke us to pity the, the sinner mm-hmm. that will face this onslaught of wrath mm-hmm. anger from God, which there is no escape apart from grace and mm-hmm. Christ. And, well, and uh, I just think I, I, the... Well, it, you did good showing the blues. I mean, I got, I got angry, you know, cause my kids watch blues clues. I didn't know that, you know, but that was one of those things, but reading that quote, it, it immediately brought me back to, yes. I mean, first thing, God's wrath is already foreordained. Mm-hmm. We understand how it's going to end, but it's so easy for me and my impatience and my pride in my, my own, uh, just thinking, I know what is best to be angry while God is being patient. God's enduring evil right now for a reason, you know? And uh, as you were reading that, I kept thinking of, of, uh, is it first, second Peter three, 
where he says, knowing this first of all in the last days. I mean, listen, this is what the Lord's already told us. Mockers will come with their mocking, following their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all just continues as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, the earth was formed out of water by water, through by which the world at the time was destroyed, being flooded with water. So there's his wrath. He's done it before. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But then the next part, this is because we could say that, you know, just be patient. His wrath is coming. But he says this, do not let this fact escape your notice that with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. you. Mm. He's patient toward you. Why? Not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Mm. It's so easy that to just, like I said earlier, that is sick. The, 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 the depravity of our society is evil through and through. But the Lord right now is enduring this evil in his patience not wanting any of his children to, to perish, but yeah. for all of them to come to him. Yeah. And that has to be our mindset. Mm. That's good. It's a good word. Coming back to uh, the chalice, uh, Chally's, Tim Challey's uh, article that I started reading where he kind of characterized what he calls uh, a great time, or excuse me, a time of great public immorality. I like the way he frames that up. He says this, I mean, because the issue for us is it, it's, our tendency as as just sinful people in general, but I think even as believers, when we are facing highly provocative social and cultural issues like this, um, is to act and speak before we think. Mm-hmm. And our thinking is not shaping in a full way our actions and our words. Listen to what Charlie says. He says, in, in the midst of... This morass, Christians are given a command that may seem impossible. We are told to have pure minds, holy minds, minds that have been supernaturally renewed by the Spirit of God, so they now treasure what God treasures and abhor what God abhors. It is not enough that we refuse to practice evil, but we must not fixate on it or even think about it. Some things are so shameful, so opposed to God's purpose and plan for humanity that we should not even ponder them, not even speak of them, certainly not laugh about them. The deeds of darkness are to be left for those with hearts of darkness. In such a difficult context, it is crucial that we avoid what is vile and pursue what is lovely. We must be disciplined in guarding our hearts from what is odious to God and therefore ought to be odious to us. We guard our hearts by guarding our minds, and we guard our minds by guarding our ears and eyes. Our hearts tend not to desire what our minds do not consider, and our minds tend not to consider what our ears do not hear and our eyes do not see. That's so that good. That's really good. This is why the Bible specifically warns us to steer our minds toward those things that are pleasing to God. The Apostle Paul says it like this. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, Whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. 
He goes on to say, divine peace flows to those whose minds are untouched and unsullied by the depravity around us. It flows to those who discipline their minds to meditate on all that is lovely and pleasing to God. So that's our call from yeah. the standpoint of, of the mindset that controls us. And really, it, it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the discipline that we have to engage in all the time to basically elevate our thinking out of the morass and the pit of the wickedness that's all around us. And I think that this is such a, a, a I mean, we, 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 we say this often in teaching, you know, in the New Testament or whatever, but we have to remember that this is not the first culture to decline into gross immorality. In fact, Paul's words right there are, are being written in a context of, of culturally and civilly endorsed immorality. Yeah. It was part of the religious worship. It was part of what it was, it, it was, it was, you were, you were um, lauded as a real man. If you were, you know, perverse in your sexuality and promiscuous yeah. women were degraded. I mean, it was, it was a very, very licentious culture that he was preaching to and writing these letters to and that kind of thing. So, and, he, and, yet, and yet he's calling those in that local context, in that first century context, as he's calling us by the inspiration of the Spirit in our context, you, your minds can't be, you can't be influenced by this in a way that it drags your thinking and your meditation down. Yeah. Because you will not know how to effectively have a... A, a public concern, a concern for the city and village in which you reside, as, as Edwards puts it. You would not know what to do to have an impact for the good, for the true welfare of the society of which we are a member, as Edwards puts it. And Randy, kind of to your, your initial point in reference to um, that great Old Testament passage, I keep thinking of how 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 often we pick up the wrong weapons to fight the war. That to me is, you know, so, so our minds are not sanctified. Our, our thinking is not captivated and meditating on all things that are lovely and praiseworthy and good and virtuous and holy and godly. And then from there, um, we oftentimes are seeking to win wars with worldly weapons. Mm. And, you know, whether it's community action, voting activity, uh, you know, political action, or even if it's just sitting around in coffee shops with other believers and raging against what the latest this or that is and thinking we've accomplished something by doing that. Yeah. Um, but I, I'm, you know, I'm reminded of what the Apostle Paul said in Second Corinthians about this very thing. He says, "For we, though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Mm. So we're oftentimes as believers, either in our 
quote-unquote righteous indignation, our fear and anxiety of an encroaching immorality that might have you know, negative or adverse impact on our children, whatever it might be, you know, we, we tend to want to take up the arms of man. And all I know is that those don't have divine power, like the Apostle Paul is speaking of. And so what we're dealing with is we're dealing with ideas and ways of thinking that require weapons of divine warfare to be, to be vanquished. And, and, you know, we talked about this, I think last time on our podcast, how anytime we begin to do that, we're basically saying that the gospel is not enough, that, Mm. that what Christ did on the cross and the message, the saving message of the gospel, that God's plan for redemption. And you even referenced it in your reading from Peter, it, it, it's just not, it's not sufficient. There's more that's needed. And basically I'm the one that has the yeah, more. He needs my help. That's right. He needs my help. So really, I just think about how, you know, I, there's, there's a lot of things that we could sort of, you know, talk about in terms of how we, how we are to engage a society that's, that's, you know, fast track toward corruption. And the fact of the matter is, is that um, there are many, many churches who are uh, accommodating yeah. to immorality, basically. Um, so the pendulum swings in both ways. You have those who are raging against it and really, really just from the standpoint of concern about moral decline are functioning in patterns of thought and action and speech that are not, they're not saturated with gospel truth. But then you have those who are for the sake of love and compassion are basically embracing in tolerating immorality and not recognizing that a little leaven leavens the whole lump yeah. and will, it will infect the entire, the entire purity of the church. And what, what, what God's called us to is it's, he's called us to have a biblical mindset that we are waging war. It is war, but we're doing it right with spiritual weapons, with divine power. And our thoughts are being taken captive to obedience to Christ and really the divine weapons are the, the, it's the weapon of God's truth and God's word and the, the saving message of the gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, there is nothing, there is nothing that will stop this tidal wave of, of various, you know, perverse cultural movements in our society. Nothing. You, you could actually have a complete flip of, you know, both chambers of Congress in the next election it's not going to, it's not going to turn that tide. Yeah. It's not going to stop anything. It's not, it's not a, d- a weapon of divine power. <laughs> the church needs to be the church with the message of the gospel in the midst of all that. And nevertheless, we're called to be people who are engaged in gospel witness That's right. in our community. Yeah. And, um, and the authority the power is the character of God in our lives. That, That's right. Cause it, Romans two four I think says the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. So we have to demonstrate that we have to hate sin in our own lives, hate sin in the culture, but demonstrate the love towards with patience, kindness, so that people will be drawn to that message of the gospel. And also knowing that 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 there will be those who will reject the message and that will hate and revile us, and we don't return evil for evil, and yeah. we don't revile in return, and we right. recognize that we walk in the example of Christ. We have the example of Christ. Yeah, aroma of life to some, and aroma of death to, the, to those right. who are perishing. That's right. So let's uh, let's pray that we will 
follow what uh, Jonathan Edwards has encouraged us to, that a man of a right spirit is not a man of narrow and private views, but is greatly interested and concerned for the good of the community to which he belongs, and particularly of the city or village in which he resides, and for the true welfare of the society in which he is a member. But God help us to do that in faithfulness to the gospel. Good to be with you guys. Okay, thank you.